Several weeks ago, a series of images taken by the the James Webb Space Telescope, which uses a infrared technology. Now, I don't really know what I'm talking about here, so bear with me. It uses an infrared technology to be able to capture pictures of corners of the observable universe that we have never seen before, that our eyes have never experienced. And I don't know if you've seen these images. They've been all over the news and online. But they are beyond astounding, especially when you get people that know what they're looking at explaining it to you. So, for instance, we are now seeing the highest definition photos of the most distant galaxies whose light has taken so long to reach us that we are practically, in seeing this light now, looking back into time for even thousands of years. We can now watch as unfathomably large cloud nebulas are giving birth to a series of new stars or how other ancient stars are starting to implode into nothing. Some of them creating black holes that absorb light and all matter that come towards them. And on the cover of your bulletin this morning, you may see um, what is called the Stevens Quintet. That's where four galaxies There's five galaxies in the pictures, but four of those galaxies are slowly merging into one. And by slowly, I mean, we mean slowly. Not after a thousand generations would we see much progress from our limited perspective. And we are talking about billions and billions of light years. That's not a measurement of time, but a measurement of distance. We are seeing an unfathomably large collection of stars and planets slowly integrating into one superstructure because the weight of their gravitational forces, uh, something beyond our ability to fathom, are pulling these heavenly bodies together into unity. The reality of what's unfolding, just physically speaking, in our universe that we're only now just beginning to see much less understand, is quite literally an awesome thing. It inspires awe in us. It fills us with awe and wonder. And because of its unspeakable immensity, it even fills us with existential dread. So many people I've seen look at these images and consider their meaning and, and realize on a, on a physical in a physical sense, that we are mere specks of dust in this great and terrible cosmos. And yet, the psalmist sings out in Psalm 8, unable to fully understand the weight of his own words, he says, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is the human being that you remember him? a son of man that you look after him. Yet, you have made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet. So from the biblical imagination of the psalmist, 
although we see the great stars and the sun and the moon, and their size and scope are beyond our ability to really reckon with. Even though this cosmos is so much unfathomably old and large than we could ever imagine, yet the Spirit informs us it is that we, human beings, are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the ones that are fearfully and wonderfully made. Icons, male and female, of God Himself. His own divine image stamped in flesh and bone, blood and breath. That's the biblical view of humanity. Although we live in a a world and a universe of wonders, there is nothing more wonderful than the human being. And yet, something has gone horribly awry, has it not? Because we look at this world today, and we see bombs exploding over the ocean, children starving in the desert. We see elderly people work like dogs in unforgiving factories far, far away. We see heat waves and tsunamis record-breaking in our own day that are decimating the poorest of the poor. We look around at our own society and we see how it's tearing itself apart through gun violence, opioid addiction, domestic abuse, racial prejudice. There's all sorts of new epidemics that are constantly popping up. Political extremism, consumeristic greed, and problems innumerable. And just to add insult to injury, we realize when we look inwardly that we're the biggest culprits of all. Because we too are contributing to the miseries of this world with our own apathy and unrighteousness, all tangled up in our sins and ourselves. So there you have it, folks. This is the dialectic of the human condition. We were made by God to be His divine co-rulers, and yet we are hopelessly at odds with Him and one another. This was our purpose, and this is our reality. Now I say all this, I bring all this up to drive home this singular point. The book of Philippians speaks right to the center of this spiritual paradox. Even using images we see here today, images and metaphors of even outer space to help us underscore the lesson. And a crooked world and a perverse generation in the muck and dark of evil and injustice. You, church, is what Paul tells us, you are called to shine like stars. To defy this age of death by working out your salvation together as one. In a universe so vast and a world so chaotic, Paul's reminder to us is that despite everything that's going on, yet through Christ, we are being saved together. And that is an invitation we can bring to the world freely. Now remember, the letter to the Philippians is a letter that Paul writes, not at the pinnacle of his career, but at the absolute ebb 
when he is in imprisonment. And although he is facing all sorts of miseries and humiliation and perhaps even death by execution, his mood cannot be spoiled. Paul is brimming with joy and with hope despite his material surroundings because he's able to see through the fog of human systems and politics and see history from God's vantage point. The gospel is triumphing no matter what the world currently looks like. And so the God who began a good work and Paul, and the Philippians, and us, and this collection of strangers, and outsiders, and sinners, and wretches, that God is bringing it to completion unto the day of Jesus Christ. Once, these people were idolaters of Roman wealth and warfare, but now they're people that live humbly, They're people that live united. They give generously to all in need. And they welcome everyone into their fellowship, into the equalizing fellowship of the cross of Jesus Christ. And at the center of this community is not Paul, it's not the Philippians, it's not their philosophy, it's not their ministry. At the center of this community is Jesus Christ, the God who became human, who humbled himself unto death to bring us into union and fellowship with God and each other. That is at the center of the church's reality. And so it behooves us, I think, today as Christians to resist the strong temptation, especially in our modern society, the strong temptation to divide to treasure our individuality over the well-being of one another. And although this is the hardest task imaginable, to live your life not for yourself, but for the sake of one another and in worship of God, although this is the most difficult thing you could ever undertake, it is the path that Jesus, who is God Himself, walked before us. And now through His life, through faith in Him, through His empowering Spirit and grace, we too can walk by faith towards our own salvation. And so let's look at our passage here today to see the specifics of this text. You know, last time um, uh, we were together, before our missionaries were visiting, we were just concluding Paul's Hymn of Christ, this great and memorable uh, worship song that's right at the heart of the book of Philippians and verses 5 through 11. That beautiful song, that praise and worship song that exalts Christ, that confesses this humble Jesus who is both our servant and Savior and yet the Lord over the universe. Every spiraling galaxy, every exploding star, on the coattails of that, Paul encourages his friends with this. He says, just as you have been obedient to humbly love God and serve one another while I've been away in prison, so now, even more so in my absence, when I'm not around, show the world the power of the Gospel by working out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
Now, if we're being honest, as good products of the Reformation, this probably is a little strange to hear. To work out your own salvation. As people that are descendants of people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon, these great reformational bastions, as, as, as people that are justification by faith alone, Paul's work out your own salvation might be setting off fire alarms in your head. I thought we were justified by faith alone, not through any work that we might do. And so we might read this and, and wonder in the back of our heads, I thought we didn't believe in work salvation. That is to say that we can't be saved by doing enough good deeds uh, in this world to offset our bad deeds. I thought we didn't believe that we could be moral enough to merit entry into God's presence and His good graces. Well, here's the fact of the matter. We don't believe that because we cannot earn our way into God's presence. So we're a right, I think, to eschew work salvation. Since Paul elsewhere tells us that none of us are just fully. None of us are totally righteous. Nobody is flawless and perfect and without sin. And that all of us, no matter how moral or respected or whatever, all of us fall radically short of the grace and glory of God. If all of us, we looked at our good works as an arrow and we loaded it into a bow, maybe a bow with a two, three hundred pound pole on it, and we aimed it at the sun and launched it into the air, some of us would get further than the others, but all of us in the end would be about 93 million miles short of what we needed to be. It doesn't matter how, you know, more moral or sophisticated any of us are. The fact of the matter is, is that we cannot save ourselves. And yet Paul says here, very strangely, that we are to work out our salvation together. So what does this mean? Well, it seems to me that in our very modern and highly individualized world, we've tended to forget or ignore the wider context of the New Testament. We tend to think of salvation as just a one-time decision where we made a public profession of faith and maybe we got dunked in this pool back here or somewhere else and then uh, we just you know, lived the life the way we wanted to. We didn't ever go to church. We were never good or kind or charitable to anybody we had kind of a me and Jesus thing when things got tough, when the uh, situation got sticky, and that's, that's good enough. That's how a lot of people in America see, as a lot of people in American churches see Christianity as just a highly individualized, personalized faith. But when the evangelists and apostles write their gospels and their letters, they are not by and large writing to individual believers. They're writing to whole communities together with the expectation that they'll pass these letters along to other communities. Now, there's a few cases where we see 
letter written to Philemon, a gospel addressed to uh, Theophilus. But that's the, the minority of what's happening. Most of these things are meant for the community. And the fact that we still have like Luke and Acts and Philemon, letters that were personal letters, means that even the recipients saw that these were things that were worth the community knowing. Truths that weren't meant to be just you know a me and Jesus kind of thing. We share this with everyone. And so Paul here is writing to the entire Philippian congregation. Not just the pastors, not just the deacons, not just the Sunday school people, not just the, the musicians, not this committee or this board or whatever. He is writing to every one of them together. And he is encouraging them not to earn their salvation, not to work hard so they can be saved, but rather he is encouraging them to work out the salvation that God has already begun in them. We have a rather anemic view, I think, of salvation. We again think salvation is you make one-time decision, you get dunked, you live hellaciously in this world, but as long as you said the sinner's prayer and you profess before congregation, you're saved. It's this kind of easy believism uh, that allows us to be just demons here on earth, but just you know sanitize it with good old Bible Belt religiosity and evangelicalism. But the reality of what salvation is is something that God initiates in us and then partners with us in seeing it come to fruition. Make no mistake, God is the one who begins it, and God is the one who completes it. It's not us that begin it, or it's not us that complete it. But along the way, He calls us to a life of active faith and obedience. To think that you are a Christian just because you belong to a church or just because uh, you're born and raised in America or because your family's always been Christian. It's not an understanding of the faith that the New Testament has whatsoever. So Paul, writing to this entire group, not just the pastors, not just the super-Christians, but to everybody from the, the least and lowliest to the highest and the ones in leadership. He doesn't see those categories or hierarchies. Instead, he writes to them together and compels them to be conformed to the image of God's Son, as he does in Romans 8. As Alistair McGrath, the great scholar, reminds us, believers are justified by their faith, but they are judged by their fruit. They're justified by the faith that is given to them freely as a gift, but then God judges their life based on what they did with this gift so freely received. So it's with reverence and respect, with fear and trembling, as Paul tells us, that he expects believers to continue on in their obedience. The first obedience is the obedience of faith. Again, which is supernaturally given to us by God. 
But that obedience in faith, uh, 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 as Eugene Peterson, the Presbyterian pastor, talked about, faith is uh, uh, a, um, a long obedience in the same direction. Continuing on in the obedience you know, of um, conversion and coming to Christ, making profession, it's continuing on in that in the same direction for a long time. To continue on in that will inevitably, necessarily lead us to an obedience of works. See, I think us Protestants, in trying to reject a sort of malformed um, Roman Catholic understanding of meritorious works as earning salvation, have gone too far to the other extreme, where it's all about, well, we have the right doctrines, we sing the right songs. We read the right translation of the Bible. We listen to the right pastors. We go to the right conferences. And therefore, because we have the right beliefs, we're justified. We're justified by Christ alone. Not by our works, nor by our doctrines. See, that is just an inversion of what we criticize the Roman Catholics for doing. Well, if we believe this way, subscribe to the 1689 Baptist Confession and Faith, uh, then we're in the clear. That's work salvation, just of the mind. So, it is precisely because, this is what Paul would offer as a corrective, it's precisely because God has wrought faith in us as a gift that we must now respond by working out that gift in our life with humble love and action and service, proving that that gift is real, that it's not counterfeit. And it's why in verse 13, Paul reminds us, again, in case we get too big in the head, too big for our britches, it's God who is working in you. It's God who is working in you using your obedience, capitalizing off your faith, both to will and to work according to His good purposes. So He grounds us right back in the action and work of God. Not in ourselves, not in our politics, not in our doctrines, but in the work of God through the vehicle of our obedience. See folks, salvation is a gift of God, to sinners like us. It's not something we achieve, but it is something that we must live out in this world. There is no passive, apathetic, sit-on-your-hands Christianity. That just does not exist. God grants His power to us to call us to exercise His power in humility. His will, His work in us, unite us to Him and Christ to redeem this world from the ravages of sin and death, to bring about the the resurrection of creation. These are things that God does, but that He has chosen to do out of His great kindness and love through us. That's the miracle of our salvation is that although we're not the ones, we're not the, the steam engine driving the train, we get to be passengers on what God is doing, active participants 
in, in the reality of His saving the world and restoring it and making all things new. He invites us to do His work alongside of Him. And not only that, He insists that we do it. That's what being saved together looks like. It's God's will. It's it's God's work in us and through us. It's a kind of salvation that looks like unity and humility. It's a salvation that thinks of others more highly than thinking of yourself. It puts the needs and the interest of others before even ourselves. And in verses 14 and 15, it's the kind of salvation that we work and live out together by not grumbling and arguing and fighting with one another. It's interesting that when Paul immediately thinks of the first steps of an active faith, it's that we enter into a peace treaty, into an accord with our brothers and sisters around us. That's because that is where the most friendly fire happens immediately in churches. We come to faith and then we tear each other apart. So Paul addresses that first. And he would have us know, Maranatha, work out your salvation, but by not fighting with one another in person or online. We have more means ever than ever to tear each other apart. We have more tools to destroy one another than ever before. Honor God. Work out your salvation by not complaining and grumbling against one another. If you want to start to see the world change and society improve, start with this. Work out your salvation in a way that you are blameless and pure, faultless children of God. Not meaning that you're not without sin, not meaning that you're, that you are somehow morally perfect, but when your community of faith and the world looks at you, they see that you trust so supremely in God and so little in your own wisdom and wit and work that you refuse to complain about other sinners when you know the sin in yourself. And that causes you to be greatly generous towards one another. See, that's the oddity in our world today. That's the strange thing in our world today. Is somebody that is kind and compassionate and forgiving when they may have the right to be mean and nasty and vengeful. Work out your salvation in this way. As faultless children of God who love and give and serve instead of hating and taking and gossiping and blaming. How guilty we are of this. How guilty I am of this. I'll be the first to confess this to you. Of, of, of how quickly it is to slip into backhanded talk against people. How easy it is to bring shame upon people. How easy it is to, to divide amongst our ranks, to live and, and brew in animosity and backbiting and deception in a world that's already given over to those devilish powers. And Christians are just as susceptible to do these things as anybody else. 
I would dare say are people whom God has appointed to be leaders in His church. I, we see this, uh, some of the, the most egregious um, uh, complainers and fighters and arguers are pastors and, and, and priests and, and deacons and people that are supposed to be in leadership in congregations. They take to their blogs and their podcasts and their social media profiles to, to constantly fight and bicker and tear other Christians apart. And it's as if almost they've forgotten Paul's warning to young pastors like Timothy and Titus that some will be disqualified from ministry because they're quarrelsome. They'd rather fight than share the good news. They'd rather tear somebody down than love and forgive an enemy. That's, that's disqualifying from ministry. Being quarrelsome, argumentative. God says, I can, I'll deal with somebody else. I don't need a scholar. I don't need uh, 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 somebody that's into apologetics. I don't need uh, a professor. I don't need a great rhetorician. I will work through a humble, loving heart. But I reject people that go out with their own wisdom and power and afflict burdens on other people. That's popular in America today. We love big and brash and punk rock personalities. But God has no time for that. To constantly bicker and argue and nitpick and criticize is to totally forget that it is God who is the one that is working and willing to His good purposes. Not you. It's not you who's bettering the world by being at war with the brother or sister who sits across you, sits across from you, on the aisle. It's a profound lack of self-awareness that causes us to be people who constantly complain about one another and who constantly carp, especially out there in a society that is suffering and sin-sick. We go to unbelievers and complain to them that they don't respect us and they don't give us our rights and our privileges. What kind of foolish talk is that from Christians? They're called to be humble and loving and self-sacrificial and giving. Going out and demanding respect. Demanding power and authority. How, how foolish we've become. It's amnesia of Christ's own humility. What if Christ came into ancient Jerusalem and talk to the people like we talk to waiters at, at, at the, the restaurants and retail workers. It would be a shame upon the gospel. He came and people who were the most morally, morally reprehensible people on the planet, he came and loved and forgave them and washed their wounds and sat at a dinner table and ate a meal with them. That's how Jesus treats sinners. And yet we Christians, oh, this person's got tattoos. They got piercings. Or, 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 or they're with a person we don't think they should be with. Or they're, they're speaking in ways we don't think they should speak. Or uh, they're, they're, they're drinking or, or doing this thing. What fools we are to act like that. Instead of coming to these people and seeing in them 
that they're no different from us. They're people that need to be loved and people that need to be comforted. People that need to be healed. People that need to be forgiven. And we work out our salvation not by clamoring about us, but by reveling in who Jesus is and sharing Him in word and in deed with a world that is so desperate for love. Paul looks around at his surrounding world, a culture of decadence, me-firstism, violence, greed, and he calls it a perverted and crooked generation. And let me tell you something, you can be rest assured that Paul's words here are as applicable to every empire that has existed since Rome. This is not unique just to Roman hierarchy. You could apply this to the Mongolian Empire, the Aztecs, the Ottomans, the British, the Americans, the Russian, the Chinese, because all of us, don't matter of what our skin color is, our, our, the language we speak, the nationality or culture we come from, all of us share in this dark and deadly sin where we despise God and one another and instead love our own power and prestige. That is a sin that crosses every barrier. But Paul calls us to a new kind of empire, a new kind of kingdom built not on genocide or exploitation or warfare or dominance, but on love and humility and unity and grace. It's an empire forged on the anvil of Christ's own cross, hammered out by God's wrath on sin. And the, the sparks that fly upward out of that action are people like us, called out of darkness, and into marvelous light, commanded to shine brighter and more brilliantly than all the stars captured by the James Webb Space Telescope. Like the nebulas and galaxies and, and the wonders of the cosmos, we too, as people, must give glory to God by lighting the way to Him to the one who began and will complete his salvation in us, who has willed and worked it out according to his good purposes. So Paul winds down here in verse 16. He says this to these Christians, hold firm to the word of life. If there's nothing else that you remember, remember this. Hold on firmly to the word of life, the word of God. That is Jesus Christ. The Word who created the sun and the moon and stars. The Word of God living and breathing and calling to us to believe in this all-just and compassionate God of the Scriptures. Live in that Word made flesh. Work out your salvation together through Him, Paul preaches, so that in the end, no matter what comes in this life, Paul will be able to boast in the day of Christ that he didn't labor in vain and that we didn't shine for nothing. Now that means that we, like Paul, may be poured out like a drink offering on the altar of sacrificial service. Life will not always be easy for us as Christians. It's 
It's a falsehood that American Christianity has come to believe that you come to Jesus and your problems go away. You come to Jesus and you gain more problems than you ever knew. But you come to Jesus and you come to One who gave His own life so that you might live forever. Come death or whatever else. Life will not always be easy, but we can always be glad of it because Jesus, who the Scriptures call our bright and morning star, has poured out His light and His blood for us first that we might be saved together in Him. Let's pray. Lord, help us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling of its responsibility. And help us, Lord, with the comfort of knowing that You are willing and working in such a way that we can shine like stars in a dark world bringing glory to Your name by our love and service to one another. Help us through it all, Father, every day and every hour that we may find vindication and victory in the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. For it's in His name that we ask and pray all these things. Amen.